and um, a couple hundred people with reminders on. So I imagine uh, numbers will just keep going up here for for a while. And I know some of our other other uh, speakers will be joining us probably a little bit later tonight. So yeah, I mean we can we can kind of jump into it. I, I definitely want to speak to some of our lawyers tonight, uh, kind of get their take on. Uh, questions around the in-camera review, right? Now that it's been granted, I think um, I saw a lot of questions out there, and I certainly had some questions as well uh, regarding the timing of that and what that what that might look like. But um, yeah, so we'll we'll just kind of recap it. It's kind of what I do to kick these things off, and uh, we go as late as we we can. So uh, big finally today. I mean, obviously, if you haven't been following the news. Um, and I understand there's there's quite a few people that are just coming into this, and um, maybe you just are following people on Twitter. You know, you just signed up. Uh, we get a lot of a lot of questions from those those people, and so we'll just kind of recap a few things. So, one of the other things that came out today was that Laura Sego of Fusion GPS has gotten immunity, and that's good news for her. But it's also good news for John Durham. So John Durham now has two witnesses that are fully immunized, meaning he's going to get anything he wants from them. And if they don't cooperate, they're going to go to jail. Uh, so Laura Segoe works for Fusion GPS. She is known as their tech maven. Uh, she's like their top cyber person. So um, you know, we don't have a whole lot of information about the project she was on. There are some files out there that you can kind of parse through to see what she was assigned to. But I know, for example, that she did some type of analysis for Fusion GPS as it relates to Guccifer. Um, her findings were pretty laughable, but I know that is something that she looked at. And then as it relates to this secret alleged communications channel from Trump to Putin by way of Alpha Bank, uh, she was asked to kind of take the lead on that on behalf of Fusion GPS and, and kind of do some analysis. So she is the person that Rodney Joffe communicated with. And what was granted today is what's known as an in-camera review. So uh, what, what that means is there is a privilege claim dispute. And in this case, Sussman and some other parties are asserting that they have privilege claims over a whole lot of emails. And you know the number of emails from Fusion GPS that are being withheld or have been redacted in some form is over 1,400. And we don't have a firm number on how many from Rodney Joffe are in existence because he's been much less cooperative than Putin GPS. I don't know that um, that number's even been quantified yet. And that's going to be you know, emails from Joffe to Perkins Coy or Sussman or others, uh, perhaps in maybe the Clinton campaign, for example. Uh, we don't have a number on that. So what John Durham filed was a motion to compel and he just took a selection of 38 documents. And 30 of those documents relate to Fusion GPS. And then eight of those emails relate to Rodney Joffe uh, in communication with Fusion GPS and specifically to Laura Sego. So that motion was granted today. The judge is going to take a look at these 38 documents. And that's what an in-camera review means. So there's a privilege claim that's being asserted over these documents. Durham doesn't have any information about what's in these emails. So he can't say, well, no, they're definitely not privileged. Uh, even, even though the privilege claims are laughable, we can't say definitively that they're not uh, work product 
type privilege or, or anything else. So what they're doing is they're saying, hey, judge, we don't, we don't want to see the documents, but we don't necessarily think the privilege claims are valid. So what we want you to do, judge, is take these 38 documents into your chambers just for your eyes only, and you look through these 38 documents and you tell us, are, they, uh, are the privilege claims valid or are they not? And then the judge is going to make a ruling, and he's probably going to say that they are not privileged because the privilege claims are pretty laughable. And we've, we've covered that in past shows pretty extensively. So I would expect this motion to uh, – obviously, the, the in-camera review is going to happen. We don't know if there's going to be an appeal. Uh, I see Ship just joined us. I'd like to get him in here because that's going to be one of my first questions is, uh, whether or not Hillary Clinton or Rodney Joffe or Fusion GPS has an opportunity to appeal and what that might do to the trial. So, um, Ship, I, I hate to just kind of rush you just as you join the chat. You don't have to jump, jump in here. Um, but if you wanted to cover that later, that'd be great. Um, it's up to you. I'm just scrolling through all the usual suspects that I see present. <laughs> Um, no, okay, so one, one thing I want to point out about the documents, before we get too far down the road here, just as you just noted, Durham doesn't know what's in them, okay? There's no guarantee we're ever going to know what's in them, even if they're produced in Durham. He might look at them and make a decision that they don't advance his case in any material way, and they go in a folder, and they get set in a file cabinet, and, and, and nobody ever advance, uses them again. Just because the judge looks at them and the judge overrules the attorney-client privilege claim doesn't mean we're ever going to know what's in them. But, you know, the, the, the various stakeholders are going to great extremes to keep Durham from knowing what's in them. And when, when you do this kind of privilege review, you know, the, when you do a, 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 an electronic you know, data preservation uh, effort on behalf of a client. I mean, you basically tell them, look, you got to segregate all of your email. You got to, you, you, you know, there are companies that are in this line of work now, you know, in the last 20 years and you call them, you hire them and it costs a lot of money, but they essentially take all of your internal email, dump them onto a hard drive. And, and then there's, you know, software to, to, you know, to, to be able to examine them and, and, and and search them by terms and then you know the attorneys sort through the documents and make judgments as to what documents are subject to the subpoena and have to be disclosed what documents are not subject to the subpoena and can simply be set aside because they're not responsive and what documents would be responsive but a privilege might attach and then the attorneys that did the that did the review create what's called a privilege log, where it's a listing of the documents. Sometimes, you know, what type of document is it? It's an email. Uh, who's involved? Uh, you know, who's the sender? Who's the recipient? And but nothing about the content other than just a claim of privilege being asserted. So that goes to the prosecutor, and then the prosecutor, you know, plugs. Really, what you do is you, you you know in the timeline you have you start looking at okay wh when are these document when are these emails exchanged and documents transmitted back and forth who are the players involved and what else 
is going on in that same time frame that I'm already aware of. Um, and, and, and from that, you can, you know, draw some, you know, educated guesses about the subject matter or contents of the documents that are being withheld. And then you go to the judge and say, okay, they're withholding a thousand, nine thousand, or, or they're hold, withholding a thousand documents, 972 I don't care about, but, or 962 I don't care about, but these 38 I want to look at. And that's how you end up where we're at today. Well, thank you, Shep. I, I appreciate you coming in guns blazing. Um, I think one of the other questions I had, so I think there was a filing last week, might have been the week before, where the judge was a little bit skeptical about Durham's theory of the case in that this is simply a, a false statement charge. Um, and I think the judge expressed a little bit of skepticism about the conspiracy aspects that Durham was presenting. So in granting the in-camera review, is it more plausible, do you think, that he will say, well, these, these documents may not be privileged, but they're not relevant to the case, but he would still allow those documents to be turned over to Durham? Is that maybe a likely scenario? Yeah, yeah. A, a grand jury subpoena doesn't have a, a relevance element to it. It's either subject to the subpoena or it's subject to the subpoena or it isn't. The court is not privy to all the theories that the government might be pursuing. So, for example, you know, the, the judge could say, well, this is just the 1001 case, and, 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 and how are these documents relevant to 1001 involving Mr. Sussman? And the prosecutor would have to go up and whisper in his ear, Your Honor, we've got a conspiracy case you know, ready to file next week, but we need to see this. So the judge doesn't know. So, so he can't exclude or he can't prevent the disclosure of unprivileged material subject to a subpoena because it doesn't necessarily fit squarely within the confines of the case being tried because he doesn't know what else Durham is doing. And Durham could turn this whole case on its head still with a superseding indictment and name you know, six more people and charge them all in a conspiracy. Is it also plausible that Clinton or Fusion GPS or, or even Jothy could appeal this uh, motion for an in-camera review, or is it, is it past that by this point? No, that's, that's, a, that's a good question, and, and, and I, I think they do have standing to appeal the disclosure before the disclosure is made. Because, I mean, what's the point of, of appealing the disclosure to – I mean, what would be the point of – telling them, well, you have to wait to appeal my order of production until after the case because Durham's got the material. I mean, the, the appeal is only effective if it keeps the material from Durham. And then, you know, the judge would be faced with a question. He would have to... The judge could say, Mr. Durham, I've, I've looked at these documents. I don't see how they impact the case that you filed. So I'm not going to continue the trial while this matter is being uh, pursued in the circuit court. And, you know, if the circuit court backs me up and you get the documents, you can, you know, use them for whatever purposes you might find they're useful, you know, in the weeks and months ahead, but you won't have them for this trial. But I don't think there's anything in there that is required or, or is material to this trial. Um, so so I, I fully expect that if, 
Cooper rules against the DNC and Hillary for America, that they, they, they'll file a, an appeal with circuit court and, and try to block uh, a disclosure order from from Cooper. It's interesting. I uh, I see FOIA fan speaker. How's it going? Hey, thank God. I only have a minute. I'm sorry to jump in and run, but I, Chip and I are of the same mind uh, when it comes to this whole FOIA issue, I mean, this whole um, privilege issue. Uh, but I will say, yeah, the Hillary uh, people will have standing to appeal because it's a collateral order. That's the only thing they're in this case for. And I, I agree that they, they, they probably could get an expedited appeal and maybe even a stay of the disclosure of these things to Durham. But I don't think that they would have a leg to stand on if they tried to appeal um, the part of the order where the judge said, hand the stuff over for an in-camera review. I, I, I don't think that the appellate court would take it before the judge at least reviewed it and made his call. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. The, the, the appellate court's not going to block Cooper, Cooper from looking at it. I mean, this, this happens all the time. I mean, the judges in the district court are always called upon to, you know, referee disputes over uh, grand jury subpoenas. Normally, you know, it's before a case is indicted and, and the matters typically are assigned to the presiding judge. Um, not always, but the presiding judge for, you know, workload purposes can assign a dispute to, to you know, one of the other district judges or sometimes a senior judge will do those. Um, but... Um, Cooper's going to see him. He, he, he's likely got him already. They've, they're likely already been filed under seal with Cooper. And we just don't know that. Um, and, and they've been sitting there until Cooper made a decision as to whether he was going to look at him or not. That was going to be my next question, actually. I mean, if, if it's not the case and if they still have to turn over these documents, is there a time, typical time frame in, in which the parties will be allowed to turn over the documents? I mean, do they have a day? Do they have two days? I know the trial is coming up here in just a, a week and a half or so. So, I mean, do they have just a day? I, I mean, or do you think the judge does have them by now? Uh, my speculation, it's always speculation, my speculation is that he has them. And, and, okay. <laughs> and then it'll, it'll depending on how long they are, it'll take them all of a half an hour to read them and figure out what's in them. It's, uh, we could have, he could have a decision tomorrow. That's interesting. Hey, MB, I don't know if you had anything. Go ahead and jump in. Yeah, I got a question. Um, is there a bigger ramification on this potential decision down the road if this goes to a superseding indictment, uh, even potentially in a different district? Would would this decision, not just on these documents, but on on potentially the other thousand documents that are out there would his would, would this judge's decision impact that in any way that you know it's an interesting legal question and and, and let, let me see if i can't tease it out a little bit more so people understand the point i think you're making so let's say judge cooper makes a determination which i don't think he will because i don't think he has to let's say judge cooper makes a determination that there's no attorney client privilege that there's no privilege that involves Fusion GPS or the Georgia Tech researchers or Jaffe um, and his company. That it just it just doesn't fall within the confines of what's traditionally recognized as attorney-client advice or services. And Durham then files an in, 
an, a, a, a much larger indictment alleging conspiracy in, oh, let's say, the Eastern District of New York. And it and, and he charges, you know, the, the campaign and, you know, individuals connected with the campaign or you know, whoever. And it's in the Eastern District of New York. Now, it's got a different judge. Is that judge bound by Cooper's determinations on the existence or lack thereof of attorney-client privilege for the same documents that uh, that Durham now wants to use? Or can that privilege be relitigated in the Eastern District of New York? There's a, there's a concept called law of the case, law of the case doctrine, that says once a legal, de- a legal determination has been made, um, where all sides have the opportunity to contest it, that it becomes law of the case, that until the circuit court says that that legal determination is in error, that it, 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 it prevails through the course of the case, unless the judge who made it reconsiders. And, and, and you know, I haven't had, I've only had to deal with that a couple of times in 30 plus years, and that's my best recollection of what it was the last time I had to confront it. Um, but I, but I think it would be, you know, to the extent that the camp, that the campaign and the DNC and Perkins Cooey and, and the other stakeholders had the opportunity to raise the privilege claim, to, 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 to make their arguments in support of the privilege claim and that it was denied, um, Unless Cooper reconsiders for some reason, I think I think it, it remains binding even in a different district on a different judge. Yeah, that was exactly my question. And I guess to, to take that even a little bit bigger, now there's X many documents that are going to be reviewed. And it, so would this decision just bust the entire privilege? So if there's another 10,000 documents out there, it's like, no, we're not going to I'm not going to have to go through a bunch more. It's this this argument is done. As opposed to, no, we okay. You said no for this batch of emails, but what about this batch over here that we do think is privileged? Well, see, that's where I. That's kind of the 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 balance that I think Judge Cooper has to strike here. It's like you know he can say, for example, I'm going to assume without determining it to be the case that there is a privilege here. But all 38 documents don't fall within the scope of that privilege, whatever it might be. They don't include legal advice. And so on that basis, the, the, the privilege is not properly asserted, even if it applies and then orders production. But just as you point out, that doesn't solve the problem because, you know, there's going to be more documents maybe disputed at some point in the future. And, 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 and but then again, at that point, you can just review those documents and have the same judgment. It's not until he excludes documents on the basis that there's a privilege that he actually has to find the existence of a privilege. As long as he's saying the documents themselves don't contain legal advice, he doesn't really have to confront the question of whether there is or is not a privilege. That's really interesting. I uh, it's a good question, MB. I don't, I don't know if you have a follow-up, otherwise I was going to ask Monsoor. I don't know if you have a question or comment, but... Nope, I'm good. Thanks, Chip. All righty. Hey, Monsoor, how's it going, man? 
Hey, I'm busy walking my dog, so <laughs> I'm just I'm just a listener today. All right. I think I I had one other technicality, I think, on that last point, Ship. So as it relates to you said it would the Judge Cooper's decision would follow into other courts and other districts. Even though I mean, we don't have an indictment against these other individuals. So is that decision gonna be binding up to the point of an indictment and then the next judge is gonna have some authority to make further decisions, or is it gonna be through the you know trials basically or the discovery phase of any future indictments that uh, this ruling on these privileged documents would would follow yeah see that's 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 just kind of a step beyond which I'm really comfortable in 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 offering a view because I'm, I'd just be guessing it's been so long since I've had to look at any case law dealing with law of the case the law of the case doctrine Um I just, I just don't know. I, I, I can't say that that another judge in a new fight would be bound by whatever Judge Cooper's rationale was that would be based on the facts as presented to Judge Cooper. You could have variables in the facts presented to a new judge. You could have new parties, new stakeholders uh, who did not get to litigate the issue before Judge Cooper, and they'd be entitled to relitigate the issue. So it's a tricky, it's a, it's a, 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 a tricky proposition. Um, you know, sometimes these are, uh, well, this is not really a conflict of laws problem, but, but um, it's just a, it's a procedural thicket that the, that, that the new judge would have to walk through to determine to what degree Judge Cooper's rulings should continue to remain respected, I think a new judge would have difficulty disagreeing, unless he, you know, had a principled legal or factual basis to come to a different conclusion. I think I have one more question, then I'm, I might take a couple questions from others and see if we can give you a break, Ship. But um, as it relates to a conspiracy case that might de- might be developing. Um, Durham has laid out this joint venture where the Clinton campaign is named, Rodney Joffe is named, and then Michael Sussman is kind of at the center of this particular case. But if this evolves into a criminal conspiracy that's charged, isn't everybody that's been named in the joint venture pretty much at risk of being pulled into that criminal conspiracy charge? I mean, the Clinton campaign doesn't have to actually commit any overt acts if they're the, the if they're the party benefit benefiting it and i i would assume there probably are some overt acts that they've committed but um as it relates to the clinton campaign specifically i'd like to ask i mean how do you see maybe their role in a criminal conspiracy case if you know the primary people committing crimes might be you know rodney Joffe or fusion gps well i see this is this is where i think the 38 documents about which we don't know what they say are the are, are the are the are the key because you know I, I think Durham without coming right out and saying it he is conceding in some respects 
that he doesn't yet have proof of a criminal conspiracy that links all the parties he wants to link in the sense that there's affirmative evidence that they agreed to commit a crime. Now, remember, you know, a, a, a federal conspiracy is an agreement by two or more people to commit one or more crimes. And Durham has kind of gone out of his way in some of his briefing to talk about, well, this is, it's, it's a joint enterprise. They're acting in concert with a common goal. But unless that common goal is a crime, it's not a, it's not a criminal conspiracy that can be charged. And, and, and I think what he is hoping, if you want to phrase it that way, he's going to find in these communications is indications of actual knowledge, actual decision-making, or actual approval from people in the campaign or in the DNC to what Fusion GPS and Perkins Coie were doing. That they understood the, they understood and they agreed with the tactics and the goals. And specifically to, to seed disinformation into the FBI in order to get the FBI to pursue the investigation which could then be leaked to the press for political purposes. And, and I think what he lacks right now, because nobody will talk, what he lacks right now is affirmative evidence as opposed to simply conclusions um, that certain individuals who are targeted knew, agreed to, and, and were on board with what was in fact a criminal conspiracy, the conspiracy to mislead the FBI. That's interesting. I, I hope we get to see some more evidence. I, I guess my, my last question real quick, I mean, these 38 documents that are the subject of the in-camera review, is there any chance we'll get to see those in the docket, in the docket or are they just going to be turned over to, to Durham? They're just going to be turned over to Durham. You'll never gotcha. know what's in them until they're made an exhibit in a court proceeding. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, oops. I was going to go to Anastasia, but I think we... I think we just lost her. Um, yeah, let, let, let's let some others talk for a while. I'm tired of hearing <laughs> my own voice. Appreciate you taking the, the questions as soon as you walk in the chat. Uh, let's see. Staff Sergeant. I'm guessing Staff Sergeant. Yeah, there we go. Um, adding a couple of people as speaker. If you have questions or comments, go ahead. I don't, you know, I, I learned just recently in another spaces chat that the the little um, heart symbol down on the bottom. If you push that, it gives you a series of commands. The one of them is you can raise your hand saying you want to talk. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, if somebody has something they want to say or a question they want to ask, they should push that little heart and raise their hand. <laughs> hey, uh, assuming it's staff sergeant, I don't know if you have a question or comment, go ahead. 
Um, I don't really have much to say. I got a lot going on in my situation right now. I've been of active duty army for uh, 10 years. A lot going on in the army. Um, I think the military is a mess. And um, I'm dealing with that mess right now. And I'm pretty checked out. I want to get out of here and just deal with my own life. But um, I'm a leader in the military on the ground. I relate with soldiers and their families. And if anyone has a question for me, they are very welcome to ask. Yeah, thank you for your service. Appreciate it. Um, Patriot, we'll go to you. I don't know if you have a question or comment. Go ahead. Uh, Patriot, if you want to hit the button in the lower left. All right, we'll go to... We'll go to Cody. How's it going, man? Uh, hey, I got so in late July 2016. So Peter Fritsch is after uh, Jay Solomon, the Wall Street Journal guy who got fired. Um, so and then Glenn Simpson is working Tom Hamburger within a couple days of each other. 2016, late July, pitching the uh, Diviakin story that Diviakin met in secret with Carter Page, and then Tom Hamburger. So his guys, he's saying, uh, back to Glenn Simpson, he's saying it's bullshit. It's impossible that Carter Page could have met with uh, Diviakin. Um, J.S. Solomon, he's not buying it. So two months go by, and then all of a sudden, Michael Isikoff at Yahoo News publishes the Diviakin uh, rumor. And it's all, all the way at the end of the article, at the very bottom, in one paragraph, and that's it. It's just like a little line. So... What what info did Michael Isakoff get from Fusion GPS that gave him so much confidence to publish a story that Tom Hamburger and G. Solomon didn't have? Like, was there something extra given within that two month period where that story just languished? Like, suddenly it didn't have legs, didn't have legs, suddenly has legs. So, what changed? Anybody have any ideas? Maybe it was just cash. <laughs> maybe it was cash. We know that uh, Fusion was paying journalists, so maybe at some point uh, it became important enough that the money started flowing through. I'm just speculating, but it seems like a possibility. I think something interesting about the Isakoff story is, if if my memory serves, he claims that part of the reason his story was allegedly newsworthy was because... Um, he called and got confirmation from someone in the FBI about, you know, confirming at least some portion of his nature of the investigation. Uh, FBI claims the investigation was super close held to the small team, which narrows down like the, the number of people that could have confirmed anything aside from Steele and Simpson uh, to like, you know, a, a handful of people. Um it actually makes you wonder if Isakoff ever even got confirmation from small team proper or if it was just all Christopher Steele's word. I don't think I can speak to that specific point. I know a lot of these guys were hanging out and they were going to, I forget, it was some tavern or something. And like, there's just a group of them. And you think like reporters are really competitive with each other. They want the, they want the scoop. And that doesn't really seem to be the case. I think there was multiple reporters that were hanging out 
and that we're fully aware of what the other person was researching or, or was going to write. And we kind of got a, a sample of that today. And I, I think we've seen this before, but where uh, Franklin Four knew exactly what Eric Lick, Lickblau was, was up to and, you know, why, you know, he was publishing or wasn't publishing. And, and I think we, we had that before, but it's just kind of remarkable that, you know, they're, they're collaborative and it, it is. Yeah. Um, especially like you said four and then the ABC news team with Mosk and Hamburg or Mosk and uh, Ross and then the Washington post news, news team, mostly hamburger and, and Rosalind. Um, like someone brought up WAPO was immediately rejecting the Carter page angle. However, they Washington post ran with like a ton of other angles specifically the entire Sergey uh, as the ultimate source of the dossier angle. Like they ran with that clear, you know, early 2017 um, when they've been watching since, as we see now, like early, early July, they've been watching dossier stuff come in and debunking it or going with it in real time, like since July. So, you know, for, for competitors to be shooting down Carter Page angles, but for Washington Post to be picking up the entire Sergey angle, um, to me seems kind of problematic uh, and weird. Um, and then the question of like, yeah, are they, are they competing outlets? Are they like cross-contributing with each other? Or what are they doing? I think like there's some kind of competition there. Um, otherwise, like I don't see why washington post would run with sergey as hard as they did because if you remember it took simpson a while to get people to write up about about sergey like four i think was one of the people was it four or no i'm, I'm confusing four with um all the other the other journalists who recently, recently wrote that the book that simpson was trashing him about i'm sorry i'm forgetting his name at the moment though yeah, there's like a lot of a lot of cross between these these outlets. I, I get a thought on that. Um, we know that. Oh, hey, what's up, fool? Um, we know that Wapo and the New York Times are sort of the everything flows downhill from there, right? And they have resources. They have actual teams overseas, foreigners, uh, foreign departments that they can send things to and run it up the run it up the flag post and see if there's anything there. And I think that a lot of these guys don't want to be out there on their own. They want to be like, you know, okay, if I'm from the New York, po New York times and the Washington post already published it. Okay. I'll jump in fine. It's already kind of out there. Or if I sent this to my guy, my research department and they said, okay, maybe there's something there, but we know the opposite was happening as far as at least the Washington post that they sent it to their their foreign research team. And they came back and said, they literally said, this is bullshit and impossible regarding the Sergei, uh, the Sergei meetings in Russia and Moscow. So I, I think there, that could be a big part of it. Is this, these guys are sort of cowardly and they're waiting for somebody else to go first before they pile on, or they want some cover that, Oh, Hey, you know, our, our whole team agreed that this was valid. So that, that'd be my thought. I'd like to know if any of them actually knew what they were pr printing was wrong. Like, did they, I, I want to, I don't know if we'll ever get to, to see it, 
I don't know if anybody will do like a tell-all book after they go to prison or, or whatever, but it sure would be nice to know. Like, did these reporters know that this was all being made up and they were just so against Trump and so afraid of what he might do that they went along with it? Or are they really this dumb? Like, to be associated with political operatives and just, just print whatever with no questions, no, you know, no decent sense of self-doubt. You know, the New York Times wasn't letting Eric Lichtblau print this because their, their people just said, you know, it doesn't feel right or, or whatever it was. And then, you know, Franklin Ford knows that. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm completely all in with this. Like, I'm printing whatever you tell me to print to David Dagan. So it's just weird. I, I don't know. Hey, let me, let me jump in here to go back to the privilege section. There's, I just saw for the first time an article that the Washington Examiner has got out, Jared Dun, Jerry Dunleavy, about today's hearing, quoting Judge Cooper as saying something very interesting. Uh, Judge Cooper, well, he's not quoting Judge Cooper. He's uh, says, the judge asked Durham prosecutor Jonathan Algor whether Durham would come back for the other 1,500 documents if the judge ended up agreeing with the prosecution about the 38 records. Al Gore said, not for this trial, but left the door open for the future, saying that your Honor's decision is important for the investigation. <laughs> I did catch that. that that's really interesting. I, I don't know if that just means for the Danchenko trial, but... It seem it would seem to suggest maybe there is a little bit more there. Maybe the Glenn Simpson trial that'd be nice. I I just don't see how Durham does not end up going after Frisch and Simpson and Joffe, even if he stops short of and and Elias. That's why he's getting Sego's testimony. It's to put Elias and Sussman in the same room with Joffe talking about the the operation. Um, and then those guys leave the meeting and they go write emails to people. And I, I, I just don't see how he stops here. I don't see how he stops at Sussman. I've said in prior sessions, I've always looked at Sussman as being a tool. He's using Sussman to get to the next stop. And I, I think I want to circle back to my earlier question as it relates to the potential criminal liability in a conspiracy case for the Clinton campaign. So I think there's some reports out there. I think Paul Sperry has reported this where Rodney Joffe was apparently in contact with Jake Sullivan on the Clinton campaign. So in a potential criminal conspiracy case that's charged with the simple knowledge and the simple coordination with Jake Sullivan be enough to pull Jake Sullivan into a potential conspiracy case Absolutely. or does it have to be okay. I mean, there's an old saying, you know, mere presence while others are committing a crime doesn't make you guilty. But if the crime is a conspiracy, an agreement and you agree to to go along with that and and you know sullivan at the time is uh you know national security advisor to the campaign and if he's if he's in on these discussions because they you know implicate you know russian interests and 
and Russian affairs. And, but he knows that the information that's being ginned up is is false. But and he knows that it's going to be submitted to the FBI, and 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 he signals, you know, the approval on the part of the campaign. Then he's he's essentially joined the conspiracy. He is now in agreement with others, and not every conspirator has to commit an overt act. It only takes one overt act by a single conspirator, not all conspirators. Doesn't uh, ship doesn't like that kind of agreement and understanding of a common goal? I mean, that really puts everybody's uh, specific testimonies under like a microscope, doesn't it? I mean, anything that they say that betrays what their real knowledge was back in 2016, especially to like the congressional inquiries. Um, it seems like a lot of the people there are under like potential exposure, even for, you know, just like minor um, obfuscation of what they knew at the time. Um, some of those guys you just mentioned in particular. Oh, yeah, no, there's no question that, 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 that there's uh, that the, the, the potential number of people or the number of people who are potentially exposed by virtue of things they've already said and done, whether it's testifying to Congress or answering questions of the FBI or Durham at any point in the past. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, something that's not well enough understood, and this is this is a little bit gets a little dicey factually, but the, but legally, legally, the law clearly provides that efforts to cover up the existence of a conspiracy are themselves overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy. Exactly. So when you're doing things to try to hide the crime that you've been involved in, you are perpetuating the crime. And, and that's where statute of limitations get interesting because every overt act renews the five-year statute. Right. That's why I've said over and over again that we don't really know when the statute might expire because we don't know everything Durham knows. So the people that have been wringing their hands over the the months tick by and they think that the statute is being lost that might be true as to certain specific acts but it's not true necessarily as to conspiracy I have a, a legal question about something I read it was DeFlippa's testimony or not it was argument um, in one of the, the recent hearings where DeFlippus was arguing that the SEO and I've got this tweeted somewhere on my page the seo considers both of the the sussman alpha bank information and christopher Steele's dossier information as quote part of the same perkins slash fusion uh work stream so meaning that like perkins and fusion as oppo research were primary and then both, you know, fingers of of the bank hoax and the dossier were, you know, subordinate to to fusion. 
And specifically, they say fusion oppo research effort. So this is probably kind of stretching it legally. But if the judge agrees with that argument, um, that those efforts are, are intertwined underneath fusion, and also that the work product that fusion is producing is, is, is not legal advice, but is, is opposition research, does that have any um, legal bearing, I guess, on what, say, someone like Steele presented to the FBI uh, on its face? For example, like since he was contracted working for Fusion, doing, if the judge, you know, agrees and says that it was oppo research, does that change in any fundamental legal way um, the, act, the information that he presented to FBI, whether it's found to be factual or not? I, Just I, I don't think so. I, I think the, the issue, the, the difficulty of charging steel is proving beyond reasonable doubt his knowledge of the actual falsity of information in his reports. It's not necessarily enough to simply say, well, he didn't have a good faith belief in the truth. Okay. He, he can advance, you know, what are, what are dubiously sourced allegations, even when he's aware of the dubious sourcing and not be guilty of making a false statement. The, the statute on false statements is pretty specific. It has to be a false statement or material omission. Now, not it, it conceivably you could argue, and I think it would be a difficult claim to make at a, at a trial and convince a jury, that not disclosing the dubious sourcing is a material omission. But it, it's but but that's I, I mean that really. Yeah, that becomes splitting hairs when you get to trial. And jurors don't like to split hairs. They especially don't like to split hairs in false statement cases. It's like the jurors want a false statement case that, you know, you told the FBI the sun rises in the West. And the FBI went out to investigate where the sun rises. You know, it has to be something that's typically it has to be something that's empirically false. And you knew it was empirically false, but you said it to mislead the FBI. I think that's the stumbling block with Steele, as opposed to Danchenko, who was just making stuff up and then attributing it to people, you know, uh, to give himself sources when he knew those people had never said it. Um, I had another thought earlier on in your question. I forgot about now. All right, we can uh, we can put some more thought into trying to remember what that was. Fool Nelson, I see your speaker now. How's it going, man? Pretty good. Can you hear me? My speaker works. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit of interference there. But that might be the wind or something, or my air conditioning. Um, okay. Yeah, basically, um, I haven't obviously I haven't listened to the entire thing. But uh, is there like I don't know if you guys have talked about how to protect identity, basically. You know what I'm saying? 
can you like? <laughs> hey, fool. Can you like? We we yeah. Fool, we lost your your whole question. As soon as you said, "Here's my question," we you cut out. Oh yeah, that's better. Sound like Megatron and Transformers right now. <laughs> hey fool, why don't you go ahead and DM me maybe or, or check your connection? <laughs> Alright, yeah, I'll be back. Yeah. Or maybe not. Alright, All right, so, thanks. Sounds you know, good. It looks like for the second time Technofog has dropped out. I wish he would speak up and speak. Technofog's a smart guy. I'd like to hear from him more. Techno's outstanding. I, I always invite him to speak, but he's... He never does. He's shy. He's skittish like a deer. Um, I don't know if you remember that first part of the question that you wanted to address, Ship, but always, I might take a couple of questions here. No, yeah, let's just move on. All right. It'll come back to me. Let's see here. Hey, Ryan. I don't have a question or comment, but go ahead, Ryan. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Hey, good, good. Um, so I, have, I just got on, and I've been following this whole thing pretty much since 2017. Um, and when this all broke, I actually had just finished college at Georgia Tech. So um, a lot of us that were in the Republican group on campus were very shocked by some of this that's come out recently because we were, you know, we were on campus there. I had a question. Maybe you guys have answered this, though. Have, do we have any idea whatever happened to that Professor Misvid, the Italian guy? Like, any idea what happened there? Yeah, he's he's keeping a low profile. Um, so, I don't know if you've read Papadopoulos' yes, book, or I, maybe you just saw some I of did. The... I did. Yeah. So, it, it's a well-written book, um, but I think that's ultimately just his attempt of trying to justify what happened and, and maybe increase some book sales maybe. Um, so he kind of overplayed a, a character, I think. And I, I think that's a conclusion of a lot of people here. If anybody else has other thoughts, go ahead and, and speak up. But um, yeah, it's a well-written book. It really leads you to the conclusion that Mifsud is, is involved in this. And he's, he's just not. Um, we, we have a couple people that have spoken to uh, Mifsud or at least his lawyer and, you know, between that and you know everything else that we've learned, I I don't think there's anything there. Um, I don't know if anybody else wants to jump in. Go ahead, but one one other thing. What about the the was it Stephen Halper? Was did we find out if he was MI six or was he attached to uh, Australian intelligence? Do do we know that for 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 a fact? Because you know in that book there was some of that speculation as well. And I yeah, so Alexander relating some of that. Yeah, so Alexander Downer's the Australian diplomat. Um, Stefan Halper is a former CIA operative. Uh, okay, so was, I think I confused them. Yep, yep. Yeah, so, and then Stefan Halper is source two for the FBI. So he, he became a confidential human source. And it is a good question because we, we still have a lot of open questions on Stefan Halper. Uh, I know Senator Grassley has sent out multiple letters, I mean, for years now, uh, trying to get more information about the contracts that Halper got through um 
you know, he was doing like research proposals and he was doing like 60 page research papers on like China for $400,000. Yeah, I was going to say, those are some big six figures for for some research on China. I was like, man, what's going on here? Yeah, so that's weird. And then his involvement in the story before he was a confidential human source is weird. And then the timing of him introducing, getting involved with the FBI on August 11th is really, really strange, especially with some of the dates that have popped up more recently in the Alpha case. So it's a good question. We, we just don't have the answers right now. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's go to Thomas. How's it going, man? Can you hear me? Yeah, how's it going? Good. Um, hey, thanks for taking the question. Um, as always, thanks for doing this. I, I think I have to go back to ship. And I apologize if this question's been asked. I, I did join a little late today. Um, I know he was stalwart today, but are we at all concerned about Judge Cooper? Um, I mean... Uh, you know, what's the chance he pulls a Bozberg? Um, it, it, yeah, it did seem like he was very, very skeptical of the privilege claims today. Um, but, you know, given where he comes from and the tight-knit community that he comes from, it is, you know, Ship, do you think there's any concern at all that he's going to put the thumb on the scale the wrong way? You know, I don't. Um, you know, he, he's relatively. Uh, you know, there's always a spectrum ac- across which you can place judges based on just perceptions, but they they do things throughout the course of their career that you know might seem contrary to where they've been pigeonholed, and so far, and I, this is this is not unusual at all in my experience, both a prosecutor and defense lawyer, that judges tend to be skeptical of defense claims and tend to be receptive to government claims, mostly because the government is generally driving the narrative early in the case. You know, the, the indictment sort of influences the point of view as to what the facts are. I mean, the, the government went to the grand jury and laid out evidence and got an indictment that explains all the facts. And, and so that early in a case, that tends to um, be the backdrop for much of what much of the comments that you might hear from the court. A defendant doesn't have that opportunity to try to, you know, draw their own picture, paint their own portrait until you get closer to trial and the, and, the, and, and, you know, evidence that is contrary to the theory provided by the government begins to come into focus for the judge. Um, and, and so far, you know, I think judge Cooper has been relatively straightforward on mostly relatively straightforward matters that tend to recur in federal criminal cases, like the battle over, you know, the FBI agent who's going to be an expert. It's like, yeah, he's going to be an expert. I, I don't, you know, this uh, this idea that, you know, they were going to try to 
not allow him to be an expert or, 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 you know, make certain, uh, topics uh, out of bounds. Like it just doesn't happen. I mean, these, these kinds of fights occur in case after case, after case, after case, including mostly cases that have no political considerations. And, you know, the, the, it, it would, it would be anomalous and unusual for a particular judge to suddenly throw in a ruling contrary to that judge's entire history and ruling on that same area in hundreds of prior cases. So I don't have any issues because I don't see that he's done anything other than what I would have expected him to do based upon his experience. Like I'm going to read the email or like today, I'm going to read the documents and I'll tell you if I think the documents are covered by privilege based on what's in them. Yeah. The fact that he read the, you know, the, are you going to do the effing story um, email, I thought was, you know, a good sign, but I, you know, just like always, I worry. <laughs> Thanks. I'm done. Alrighty. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, let's go to Huber. Huber, how's it going, man? Nice and uh, lovely evening here. I have uh, two maybe quick questions. Uh, one of them is going way back, and the other one's a little bit more recent. So on Sego, um, seems that they didn't want to um, talk. They took the Fifth Amendment. What would stop them from just saying, I don't remember, to everything that they ask? Uh, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe she uh, wants to limit criminal liability because maybe there is something that she's worried about. Um, so in negotiating a pretty sweet deal, um, you know, it's going to be pretty nice for her to have immunity, I imagine. Uh, so she can move on with her life and she doesn't have to, to worry about what's coming. Um, it's kind of a win-win. I mean, she gets out from underneath all, everything, and then Durham gets a, a witness that he needs. And you know, I imagine her lawyers were pretty, um, pretty knowledgeable of the fact that Durham might like a witness, but he doesn't want a high-profile witness. And Laura Siegel's kind of a, a nice mix where she knows a lot, but maybe she's not the, the high-profile target that um, would be a major coup to, to take down. So. Let me address, and this this is kind of a trial practice thing. So you know, sometimes I feel like these trial practice tips that I can offer help people understand a little better how the how the procedure works inside the courtroom, which you very rarely actually get to see, and you never get to see in federal court because cameras aren't allowed. But so the question is, well, what's to prevent her from simply saying, "I don't remember," "I don't remember"? Remember, the trick is to get her on the stand answering questions. Once she's there. You can now show her all kinds of documents and ask her to review the documents, ask her to read the documents, and, ask, and then ask questions based upon the contents of the documents. You can't, if she's not there, you can't necessarily just introduce the documents themselves. Documents themselves are hearsay. You know, they're, they're whatever the author wrote. And unless you can cross-examine the author, the document oftentimes is not going to come into evidence. 
But once she's on the stand, they can show her her own emails. They can show her email that people sent to her. So the idea that she can just say, even when presented with all this documentary evidence or things she wrote, memos she wrote, research papers she wrote, who knows? The idea that she can just say, I don't remember, I don't remember, I don't remember, it, 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 it just doesn't happen. Mm. Because it, it would be, at, at some point, it's going to be obviously an effort to evade, and she gets cited for contempt by the judge and sent to jail. Yeah, okay. That makes, I mean, makes sense. Um, one other quick question. I have, since we were talking about stuff going way back, I have the OIG report open here on the uh, <clears throat> Carter Page FISA. And um, it talks about how, a, um, basically in the Woods procedure, if you want to have a factual assertion, you just have to provide that a confidential human source has told you that. Um, is that a, to me, that seems like a huge deal, where you could just start with um, any confidential human source and have them say whatever you want and then start an investigation based on that. Um, is that not, <laughs> is that not an issue? I, I, I didn't see anyone really talking about that. Of course, it's been a long time. That just makes like, cr it seems crazy to me that, you know, Steele could go and lie to the FBI since he's been a confidential human source beforehand. Um, he could just go and start an investigation on a sitting president or potential president. I don't know. That, that seems insane to me, but. That that is really that is really going down a rabbit hole. I've tried to explain this in writing a few times. There is a misconception about what, you know, it's 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 not the confidential human source that necessarily is providing you the probable cause to get the warrant. It's the statements of the agent. Okay, the agent is the affiant, and what the agent says is that a confidential human source told me X Y Z, and he writes that down. Unless the agent actually knows that XYZ is false, the agent can write, you know, I, you know, that, that, that this confidential human source has been vetted and is deemed reliable by the FBI. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a signed up confidential human source. That goes with the territory. You don't, you don't become a confidential human source for the FBI unless you, you're deemed reliable. Now, Steele would have been deemed reliable based on, based on his history as an MI6 agent and kind of the thin information about his prior assistance with the FIFA scandal in 2014 or whatever year that was. Um, so, so the agent is simply reporting information that the agent has been told or information that the agent has found in publications or documents. He's, he's simply tallying everything that has been accumulated. It is not necessary in a FISA application for the agent to go out and verify that all of that information is, in fact, true. That's sort of the purpose for the warrant, is to try to verify if that information is true. So, for example, they assemble all of this information that suggests that Carter Page is, you know, playing footsie with people in Russia and has gone over there and met with people in exchange. The purpose of the warrant is to confirm whether or not that's actually true about Carter Page. Will we find material when we surveil Carter Page in the ways that FISA allows that tells us that that's true or not? If you knew it was all true, you wouldn't need the warrant. 
it, it it's it's in some ways it's a difficult and it's and, and and the reason these rules are a little bit more relaxed on the FISA side is because you're not trying to put somebody in jail with the information. An intelligence warrant is just to gather data. It's not to gather evidence. You're not trying to gather evidence for use in a courtroom to prosecute somebody for a crime like you are when you use a warrant in the context of the Fourth Amendment as part of a criminal investigation. The only thing the intelligence division is doing is accumulating information that can be used to assist the executive branch and the president in developing foreign policy. What is... What is Carter Page doing, and how does that influence the way we approach our relationship with the Russians? It's not about putting Carter Page in jail. And that's the difference between an intelligence vehicle like a FISA warrant and a search warrant that you get from a judge to go kick in the door to somebody's house and look through all their things. Excellent. Thank you very much. Hey, to circle back to Seagull for a second, Chip, um, I think I saw you earlier today there, uh, mentioning there are different types of immunity and what exactly uh, with the immunity she was given versus, you know, something else. Could she be prosecuted in some other capacity if she had different immunities? Well, I, I, I'm fairly confident. I didn't look at the document, Chip, but I'm pretty confident she was given transactional immunity, which basically is a get-out-of-free-jail card even if you committed a crime in connection with your testimony. It's, 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 it's just like, we will not prosecute you if you answer questions. Transactional, that's transactional immunity. Use immunity is a little different. It's more limited. Use immunity just simply says, we will not use the testimony you give in any way to make a case against you, but we can still prosecute you if we can find evidence against you in other uh, endeavors. Um, I, I would have to look at the order uh, that was issued to see which she was given. Typically, it takes transactional immunity to force somebody to give up their Fifth Amendment right. Um, and, and so that's my working assumption is that's what she was given, and that was the basis of the order that's compelling her to testify. Techno Fog's back. He should talk. Speak up. I'll send him a request. I, I don't know that I can promise he'll speak. <laughs> I'm just trolling him. I don't think he will. Hey, but, you know, I've been at this now an hour. I actually have some J6 work to do. i got some people waiting on stuff for me, and they find out I've been doing this for an hour. They're going to wonder why their stuff's not done. So I need to – I might stop back in a little later depending on how late this goes, but I'm going to sign off for now. Okay. Well, thank you, Ship. I always appreciate when you can make our chat. Uh, we have a few more questions here. I, I don't know if any of the other speakers want to cover any other topics here. Um, Full Nelson, I see you're still here. I don't know if you want to jump in with any questions or anything you wanted to get to, too. Fool, do, Fool doesn't usually have questions. He usually has statements. 
Uh, let's see here. I'll take another one. I will go to that one guy. What's going on, man? Hey, guys. Thanks uh, for giving me a chance to ask a couple questions. Um, I had a quick and dry legal question for Ship, but too bad he hopped off. Maybe uh, I can ask him when he gets back. Um, but I had a question for Ryan and the gang on the 2016 DNC hack. Um, you know, if, if I could pick everyone's brain for a moment, the 2016 DNC hack allegedly occurred in April 2016. Six months prior, you had Podesta's emails being hacked in March 2016. The RNC was apparently targeted but not hacked around the same time. Um, you know, the official narrative is that the Russians were responsible for all three hacks. Uh, I guess my question is, do you have any thoughts on how these other supposedly Russian hacks factor into the attack attribution assessment to, to Russia for the DNC hack? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, I think we're looking at multiple attacks. And it's just my sense that the Podesta hack is much more realistic. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word to use, but I think it's more representative of what I would expect a Russian hack to look like. And I think that one you can assume is definitely Russia um, or definitely a malicious actor. Um, I'm a little bit more skeptical about the DNC hack. I, I try to hedge a little bit, um, you know, because there are there are activities that Russians were up to, and we can't really parse out what it was. And you know, we've had these questions for six years now. We want to see the CrowdStrike reports, and we still haven't been able to get those. Um, but there are some interesting questions developing, and we actually see, you know, there, it's really really strange to me to see. Manos Tanakakis, David Dagan, those are the Georgia Tech researchers. And you know, we have some information about Rodney Joffe potentially being involved as well. And you know, the fact that they have proximity at all to the DNC hack is just weird. I, I'm not suggesting that they're involved. I don't know. We don't have you know, specific evidence that they were involved in the early stages of analyzing the hack. But the fact that they were involved at all is just really, really strange to me because they're obviously at the center of this uh, fake Russia alpha, you know, communications channel. And the fact that they would have proximity to the two largest, you know, cyber events or, or allegations through 2016 is, is really unusual to me. And that just has so many sensors going off in my head. And I know there's more documents and more information that's coming um, that's going to drive more conversations about that. Um, I, I don't know if anybody else wants to jump in on that. I kind of gave a long rambling answer there, so I apologize. MB, did you have anything on that? I did not. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you have a follow-up, but go ahead. Uh, no, I, I'll, I'll see if, uh, if shit popped back pops back in. I just wanted to see, uh, you know, the standard of review on appeal if uh, the Clintons were to appeal a disclosure order from Cooper, if it would, you know, be another round of in-camera review by the Court of Appeals and, you know, if they would have any deference to Cooper's decision or if it would be a de novo review. But yeah, uh, I'm not qualified to answer that, at least not in criminal procedure. So I'll, I'll just wait. Yeah, we did hit that a little bit. It might have been just before we got on the chat. Um, so I asked Ship, um, and he his feeling was, 
at this point, Judge Cooper is going to see the documents. Uh, there's really nothing that Ship was was suggesting uh, that would prevent uh, Judge Cooper from actually seeing the documents. And Ship suggested that Judge Cooper might actually have the documents already. And of course, with 38 emails, I mean, he could probably do his review pretty quickly. Um, but there is a potential that you know the Clinton campaign or Fusion GPS or Rodney Joffe could appeal and would likely appeal uh, the disclosure of any emails uh, to a higher court before those are released to Durham. So that's a good question. I don't know if you that quite answered what you. Were no, asking, yeah, but. I I, uh, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. I, I guess it, it was more, you know, what what would it look like? if that was to be appealed, would the court of appeals, you know, be deferential and say, you know, we have to assume Cooper has a better understanding of the facts and knows that this is, you know, uh, the, the privilege claims don't apply here or would they, you know, have to completely review the documents all over again, like Cooper did and sort of second guess his decision rather than having some deference to it. Um, but I, I mean, I, I'll probably just look, a little bit into it myself and you know again appreciate everything you're doing ryan and uh thanks thanks again for letting me talk yeah thank you i appreciate it uh let's see here let's go to glenn hey glenn how's it going Hillary sued Trump and Russia, uh, you know, that civil suit that got tossed. Um, I think she put into issue um, part of the things, uh, you know, either the Alpha Bank stuff or the Steel stuff or something that Fusion GPS came up with. And I haven't read it in quite a while, but there is the issue of um, uh, selective disclosure of purported attorney work product to a fact finder in particular. So in other words, she might be able to get away with uh, saying stuff that would otherwise be work product to the press. But once it's introduced, you know, to a fact finder that may put it on a different level and be a potential source of waiving that privilege. Has that been come up or been discussed um, that you know of? And the other question that I uh, was curious about is when Durham went overseas and like late summer, early fall, 2019, do we know where he went and who he talked to or anything like that? And that's all I got, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll take the second part first. So as it relates to Durham's travels in 2019, um, what we know about that is that he went to Italy and he went to Australia, I believe. And I, I think he might have sent some representatives to Ukraine. I'm not uh, entirely sure how those interviews were conducted. Um, but obviously, as it relates to Italy, uh, public reporting has suggested that he's looking into misuse there. Uh, he may have gotten a couple cell phones. And he's just basically run down all the leads. So when Durham's finished, I don't think he wants any open questions. He doesn't want there to be a situation like we saw with Robert Mueller where uh, he's testifying before Congress and he asked, he's asked about Fusion GPS and, you know, Robert Mueller had no idea who Fusion, Fusion GPS was. So Durham's not looking to do that. So he's going to run down all the leads and just so he can answer those questions. So he went to Italy, uh, looked into Mifsud, no evidence that he really obtained anything of, of substance there. But um, as far as we know, that's all he looked into there. 
Um, as it relates to his Australia travels, I think that related to Alexander Downer and the reporting of the original tip as it relates to Papadopoulos and how those conversations went. And then I think uh, he's had some conversations with uh, persons in Ukraine uh, that could have a lot of different avenues there. Uh, that could be the Manafort Black Book. Uh, that could also relate to Alexandra Chalupa and certain activities that she was kind of tasking people with. Um, so I, as far as I know, those are three primary locations. He might have asked some questions in the UK as well, but, um, well, and, and in particular, I was curious about the Ukraine since we've got the, um, um, you know, the potential computer hack ties there and whether he was after any computer stuff in particular, uh, over there, um, Yeah, I, I don't think he actually pursued anything related to um, anything cyber related with Ukraine. So there, there are certain allegations out there that um, they had a role in the, the hack of the DNC or um, a couple other, I think, theories are, have been floating around. But I think, um, you know, the, the most likely explanation for his inquiries are, are probably related to the Manafort Black Book and uh, Chalupa as well. So. Okay, thanks. Um, anything about the um, Hillary versus Trump and Russia case? Oh, that's right. Um, you're, you're referencing the, the lawsuit that was filed a couple years ago? Uh, yeah, and in particular, the point that, you know, if you go investigate stuff to provide legal advice, et cetera, et cetera, um, their courts have found that you can't, um, uh, selectively disclose that information to a fact finder that that can be grounds to um, um, uh, waive, uh, you know, what would otherwise be, you know, uh, privileged information um, and um, get after the entire uh, um, uh, work product uh, subject matter area. Um, and it's it, it's happened in a couple of cases and it's been, you know, absolutely deadly to uh, the people that um, uh, tried that game and lost. And that's kind of why I was wondering whether um, anyone was aware of Durham bringing that up or anybody else looking at that issue in particular. Yeah. So Durham has brought that up. And um, the judge actually noted uh, noted that today in a certain communication from Peter Fritch. Uh, to I think it was Hosenball, uh, where he said, do the effing alpha story um, in a long string of emails. So um, we also got a large dump of emails last week, and this was, these were emails from Fusion GPS to a whole host of reporters. And what we actually saw in those emails were, was that um, certain reports and white papers around Alpha Bank were being circulated and sent out directly to uh, different reporters. And I think Durham actually noted that like basically a, a verbatim draft of what was sent to the FBI was actually sent to a certain reporter with like almost no changes. So um, yeah, to your point, I mean, they have no claim to privilege whatsoever. And, and I think that's why we saw a quick ruling from the judge today where he's definitely going to do the in-camera review. And uh, I think the speculation from, from all of us is, you know, there's really no substantive privilege claims that are being asserted here. Uh, you know, this is not legal advice. You know, they have books out there that they've written. They've they've done a hundred interviews, and they're all saying, you know, nowhere in there was it about legal advice. It was really about opposition research, um, which wouldn't be privileged 
to begin with. But uh, to the point that you're raising specifically, I mean, as soon as you give to the media, it's not privileged anymore. As soon as you give to any third party, it's not privileged anymore. So um, they really don't have any legs, legs to stand on. And we also saw that in the FEC, FEC report as well that Durham filed the other day. So, um, um, Yeah, um, it, it can be different for work product versus attorney-client uh, privilege. Um, you know, you can get by with disclosing some work product to third parties, um, even to opposing parties and not, um, you know, have quite the level of, uh, work, you know, the same level of waiver that you would on say an attorney client communication. Um, and, um, um, I would, I was kind of surprised they didn't actually go after the entire, you know, uh, well, judge, let's see what you. Uh, let's see what you find with those 38 emails. But yeah, if uh, there are problems with those, we want to see the rest um, uh, today. I, I, I was kind of baffled by that. Yeah, they, they did know. And I think the judge, there's a quote in the Dunleavy article, the write-up about it. And Dunleavy noted that um, the judge asked, um, I forget the, the prosecutor on the Durham team, but he said, you know, are you going to come back and ask for the other 1,500 emails if I grant these 38? And the Durham team member said, uh, maybe in a future trial, or certainly in a future trial. Um, so, yeah, it, it might be a little bit strange, but I also think, you know, the case that Durham is making really doesn't represent on the whole body of, of evidence uh, that would be needed in 1,500 emails. This is simply a, a false statement case. Uh, the lie that Sussman actually made is not in question at all at this point. There's no question that he lied and uh, saying that he was not representing anyone. And to, in order for Durham to complete his case and get a, a prosecution uh, to the finish line, all he needs to show is that Clinton and you know Fusion GPS and these other actors were his clients and Rodney Joffe. All he needs to show is that they were his clients, and then and then the lie is complete, right? Because Sussman said he wasn't representing one. Here's, you know, 38 emails or whatever it is showing that Sussman went specifically on the behest of Rodney Joffe. Game over. Sussman will be convicted just on that. And then, yeah, certainly in future cases, uh, Durham's going to want to move sw swiftly, I hope, for those 1,500 emails. And, uh, you know, as he's building a conspiracy case, he'll definitely want to want to have those. Hey, I've got a quote from the I've got a quote from the Dunleavy article um, that he took from the hearing, and uh, he said uh, the judge quoted from an email by Frisch to a reporter October 2016, in which the Fusion co-founder said to do the effing Alpha Bank secret com story. The judge said, "How is that assisting Mr. Elias providing legal advice?" Dot dot dot. That is assisting a media strategy. So it seems like the judge at least if, you know, that dot, dot, dot might be doing a lot of lifting, but seems like the judge is, you know, on board with what everybody's saying and what certainly the, the prosecutors are saying, that this is bullshit, that this is not privileged information. They're pushing information to the media. Yeah, the judge seems pretty darn good to me so far, despite being an Obama appointee. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think it's been pretty reasonable and pretty fair, so... All right, let's see what else we got here. Um, 
let's see. Let's go to Larry. Hey, Larry, how's it going? Uh, is that me you're talking to? Larry? Yeah. Hey, Larry, how's it going? Hey, uh, good. Um, yeah, so both the, well, first, when, when is the trial uh, slated to start? I couldn't find that anywhere. I believe it's May 16th. Okay, and how will we find out what's going on inside the courtroom? Uh, so it'll be a closed trial. There'll certainly be some, some people that are inside the courtroom that'll write up stories about it, but um, you can follow the docket. So if you just Google United States versus Sussman, uh, you'll be able to follow, follow at least the filings that are in the docket. And then, you know, as the trial actually begins, yeah, you'll have to rely on like Jerry Dunleavy might be there and I don't know if Charlie Savage will be there as well, but those will kind of be what we have to rely on. So, Okay. And uh, about the, the 38 emails, uh, this is what I mainly wanted to ask about. Um, so apparently these are 38 from uh, a batch of 1,500, apparently. Uh, I think I heard. Um, was that just a random sample of 38, uh, or did he? how did he pick those out? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's 1,500 emails around Fusion GPS that they are asserting privilege on or that they have redacted in some way. And so out of the 38 emails, 30 of them are just around Fusion GPS. And then we have eight emails from Rodney Joffe to Laura Sego of Fusion GPS um, that are maybe a little bit different in that um, we don't have a discrete or concrete number on how many emails Rodney Joffe might have, might really be asserting privilege over. So it's 1500 around Fusion GPS, but there might be more emails because Rodney Joffe is completely not cooperating. Uh, but Rodney Joffe might have emails to Michael Sussman. He might have emails to Clinton campaign people um, or others that might also come into play in another case further down the road. So, um, as it relates to this one, um, yeah, I don't know that we have any information about how Durham came to select these emails. I, I think, from what I can gather, he was looking at privilege logs, which are uh, submitted from you know the Sussman team uh, or the Fusion team in this case uh, to the court, and they're basically you know have a little bit of a description on what the record is and. My understanding, at least, is that Durham made those selections based on those privilege logs. So, okay, and he couldn't. Like I heard someone say earlier, I can't remember if it was Ship or you that said um, that Durham does not know. Like we know with certainty that he does not know what's in any of these, at least the thirty-eight emails. Um, so I guess that means he he hasn't actually seen them himself. But uh, you know, uh, how, how, how close could he be to knowing what's in them? Like, could somebody have told them what's in them or something? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. So Durham has not seen these emails before, but we also found out today that Laura Sego got full immunity and we know that Laura Sego is CC'd on some of these communications. So it, it stands to reason that Laura Sego might, be able to say, you know, she might not have access to the records anymore, but she might be able to remember, you know, hey, I didn't 
send that me many emails back and forth with Rodney Joffe, but they were, you know, there's some crazy exchanges in there or whatever the case may be. She might be able to fill in some of those gaps to let Rodney or to let Durham know uh, generally what might be in the emails. Okay, and just one last question about them then. Uh, when, when he selected them, would he have been just trying to find the ones that are going to help his case the most or the most sort of uh, damning and showing that they, they're, they're, they're clearly asserting privilege where it shouldn't be asserted, um, like just to sort of like, uh, you know, expose them as, 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 as liars or frauds or whatever? Or, is he, or do they have to be really important and, and also, you know, be, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question, and, and I wish Ship was here. He might be able to speculate on that a little bit better. Um, but based on these privilege logs, I mean, he might have, like, the subject line of certain communications, and he's going to have a short description. So based on the privilege logs, my understanding would be privilege or that Durham's going to make the selections based on what's most relevant to his case. Now, it might very well be the case that in these 38 emails, it's going to be really clear-cut that there's no privilege claims that are valid whatsoever, and that might be a lot easier or might be helpful in the future in getting the, the rest of the emails. So I, I would think, though, with trial set in 12 days from now, uh, Durham's just going to be focused on what's most relevant for the Sussman case, um, basically showing that Fusion GPS and Rodney Joffe and the Clinton campaign were his clients when he took the information to the FBI. Okay, thanks. I'll kick it back to you. Yeah, thank you. If, if I can add, um, because I know there's a lot of questions of like, oh, what does Durham know? And is he going to be able to, you know, pull off a grand performance? And uh, there's a little something, our, our favorite little uh, Twitter user, Charlie Savage. Um, I just came across it today, so I'm just going to retweet it out again. Um, he says in Michael Schmidt's uh, published book, Donald Trump versus the United States, came out in 2020, that there's a little detail um, that after Trump tweeted out that Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower, Jeff Sessions, uh, then attorney general, assigned Durham to open a leak investigation into Comey and his office. And it was uh, that's how far back apparently Durham goes is March 2017, early March 2017. And it was specifically the Trump Towers wiretap comment, which means Alpha Bank, which means David Dagan, uh, Manos and Tanakakis. I think uh, you're I think you're conflating a couple different stories there. So um, Oh, am I? Yeah. I don't think there's any reason to connect the Trump Tower um, allegations that were surfacing in, in early twenty seventeen with what Dagan and Jompy did later on. So it happens to be the case that um, you know, Trump tweeted that out that he was being spied on at Trump Tower, and then later on we kind of find out that Rodney Joffe was going through and parsing through the data coming out of Trump Tower and Trump's apartments and and even the White House. Um, but I, I think they're different events. I I don't think Donald Trump knew that you know Joffe or Dagan or anybody was actually going through his data. Um, well, th 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 there's little things, right? There's like always little things. And he, like Sergey Millian tweeted maybe a month or so ago um, that he called the Trump White House sometime shortly after inauguration. And he, you know, he, Sergey is often vague, but he did say that he told the person that on the other end, he told them everything about who was 
secretly attacking them or, or something to that effect. Um, again, the Sergei is vague, but it, it seems like the Trump White House was clued in at a very early stage. I, I, I love Sergey, but it, it would be hard right. to lead into um, more tea leaves. Anything that he would say, and you have to remember that on you know inauguration was you know January twentieth or twenty first or whatever twenty seventeen, sure. and then Sergey Milian was named as a source for the dossier alleged uh, on January twenty fourth in the Wall Street Journal. So he was obviously pretty upset, and um, you know he might have been looking looking for a little bit of assistance and, and getting his name cleared. So, uh, yeah, sure. Maybe it's some of the stuff that Jaffe was doing would have been in retrospect that he, he was, you know, wasn't necessarily real time. Um, so Admiral Rogers went and met Trump in November of 2016. when he was president elect and we don't know exactly what he told him, but that sort of rang the alarm bells that maybe Trump was being somehow, surveilled at least that was you know what people thought so um you know i, I hate to jump in i no good i think walker fires actually kind of debunked that a little bit and i i wish walker fire was here because he he actually went through and analyzed this and walker fire came to a conclusion i believe that um that was kind of just like a right-wing narrative that kind of surfaced that uh michael rogers actually warned trump uh, or or that trump moved in response to that I think okay. I think the conclusion that Walker Ferguson came to, and I'd have to ask him, was that this was this move was actually more related to uh, the lack of security features at Trump Tower. Um, like the, you have to have a certain amount of infrastructure uh, for security purposes, and for whatever reason, they they weren't going to be able to install that in Trump Tower. I don't know if what whatever's with the construction, or you know, it's too big a place, or whatever the case might be. Um, but that's my that's my recollection, and it's been a few months since I talked to Walker Fire about that. Okay, well that that's interesting too because so Trump started complaining about being wiretapped in March of 2017 when he was obviously in the White House. At that point, he was saying he's being wiretapped at Trump Tower. So if that's the case, then where did he get this idea? And maybe that actually does jive with you know somebody telling him, hey, or somebody that if Jaffe was retroactively looking at the Trump Tower DNS stuff in, you know, early 2017 uh, that happened before, maybe that kind of matches up. Yeah, I don't want to shoot it down entirely, but I I find it hard to believe that Trump would be given a warning. Um, And if he was, then obviously it it would have like no specificity to it because I, you know, I can't imagine Donald Trump sitting on information knowing that like DNS was mined or, or went through out of its Trump tower for you know the last five years. I, I think he would have tweeted that out by now. No, right. But it's just, it's an interesting coincidence that Trump in March, 2017 says I'm being wiretapped and he did get wiretapped, but it was, you know, retroactively wiretapped. So that's just a strange coincidence. It is strange. Yeah. Yeah, there's like, again, going back to Million, there, there's conflicting, I guess, viewpoints on Admiral Rogers, um, because Lee Smith in one of our back in early February, he 
uh, said, and I think it was, no, it was way back. It was in the, the first uh, broadcast we had. Um, I think it was in October, November, um, when uh, Danchenko got indicted. Um, Lee said that uh, he doesn't put a lot of confidence in the rumor that Admiral Rogers was doing something heroic by warning um, the Trump, in, you know, the incoming White House that, hey, your Trump Tower's bugged or you got to move it out to the golf course in New Jersey. Um, so Lee was uh, said it w- wasn't putting much credence in the story. But then Sergey, a week later, is quote tweeting someone else saying Admiral Rogers is a hero for moving the Trump White House, you know, out of Trump Tower. So I don't know exactly what to think of it. It's just something that hasn't been resolved yet, among other things. Yeah, and I love Sergey, but you know, I don't. I don't know that. I don't know if any reason that he would have inside information on that one. Um, let's see who else we have here. Oops. Uh, Cubby mom. How's it going? Cubby mom. How's it going? All right. Hey, Dirty Tricks, what's up? Good evening, guys and gals. Uh, just a quick question. I'd like to go back to the hack of 2016, DNC, if I can. Um, I'm sure some of you guys heard of a guy named William Binney from the NSA, ex-NSA analyst and programmer. Uh, I've seen him speak on many times many times about how he at the time was able to look at the data transfer speeds and 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 know for a fact that it was not a hack but a leak a direct uh, transfer of the uh data through a, a direct link up with the computer because of the speeds of the transfers uh, have any of you ever heard anything about this? Yeah, I've taken a look at the analysis. It has been a little bit of while, a little while since I actually looked at it, but um, there was subsequent review of that information, and I don't think it was nearly as conclusive as what he's portraying. I, I think it was interesting analysis, and I, I do generally support the idea of a false flag operation and and you know, like an inside job being done. I think there's a, a potential there. Um, but I, I don't know as it relates specifically to whether a thumb drive was used or whether it could have been done over a Wi-Fi connection. I, I don't think it was quite as conclusive as um, it was portrayed. I don't, MB, I, you're more technical than I am. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat, though. That was... Uh having read some of the 
contrary uh, explanations that uh, I, I don't remember the details, maybe spicy or somebody does, but uh, it sounded pretty convincing that the, uh, the transfer speeds weren't the, the smoking gun that uh, you would have thought they were. I just can't remember the details. Okay. Sounds good. Um, just I find it a little uh, <clears throat> funny that um, this all happened after it was found out what the DNC was doing to Bernie Sanders. I was a Sanders guy back then in 16. Uh, I left the party back then after I seen everything going on. Uh, you know, I know it's a uniparty uh, elite uh, DC bubble there, but Besides that, um, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, there, there's always there's been a lot of allegations out there. It's really yeah. hard to know. Um, you know, there's there's certain people that think it's going to be like a Bernie insider, somebody that was sympathetic to Bernie Sanders and was really upset over uh, what Hillary Clinton and the DNC had done to Bernie's campaign. Um, I'm moving away from that. I, I don't think that's likely because there, there's certain technical aspects to this. So, um, you know, CrowdStrike did not pick up the exfiltration of the emails on their sensors. We know that exfiltration occurred, you know, three or four weeks after CrowdStrike got on site and knew that Russians were active in the network. So for them not to pick up the exfiltration means Either their sensors are garbage, which I don't think is the case, or the exfiltration had to occur on a system that was not monitored by CrowdStrike. And the only way for somebody to know which computers were plugged into the network uh, or being monitored would be somebody high level with knowledge of what CrowdStrike was doing on a daily basis. So that's not going to be your average, you know, person that's just sympathetic to Bernie Sanders. That's going to be somebody that, um, you know, has a high enough caliber that they're intimately involved with the investigation of the hack itself. So, um, you know, that's, my, that's the thread that I pull on when I'm kind of considering the, the hack of the DNC. Right. Well, then I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a little off base because I guess you know where I was headed. Uh, but, um, you know, that um, as far as I've seen it come out of uh, Julian Assange's mouth, he offered uh, the reward for this 26 or 27-year-old that was murdered on the streets of D.C. And, you know, he wouldn't say his name, but it was a Dutch television program, and I seen it, his interview. And I, they never, well, I guess maybe they never had anybody... Uh, you know, I, I just find it odd that he would just come out with a, a reward offer days after this happened. It wasn't never televised in our media, but it was a Dutch television program I seen. It on. But that's basically all I have. I appreciate your time, guys. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. And and um, for those that aren't, aren't aren't catching that, what he's referencing is Seth Rich. Um, and Seth Rich was a, a young DNC staffer. He worked generally in the IT field. I don't recall exactly what he did. Um, he was murdered in DC and, and, you know, Fox news, uh, and a few other networks kind of ran with that as 
like the thread and the big signal that, um, you know, there's a conspiracy afoot and it was just a tragic circumstance, but there's a lot of reasons not to, not to, not to look at Seth Rich. So number one, you know, he left the bar at 4 a.m. And he was walking home. And the, the idea that people were just out there waiting for him at 4 o'clock in the morning is a little bit hard to believe. Um, you know, that's, that's not – it's just hard to, to just wait there at 4 o'clock in the morning. And then number two, they didn't actually finish him off. He died hours later at the hospital. He's obviously lying there on the ground, um, defenseless, just a horrible situation. Um, but, you know, if you're in a conspiracy and you want to explore that as an avenue, I mean, that's like a big, that's a big reason not to go there. I I think, you know, the biggest takeaway from Seth Rich is, you know, don't walk home at four o'clock in the morning when you're drunk and you're in a high crime area. I mean, that's, that's it. It's, It's crazy unfortunate. It's, you know, I can't imagine what his family went through, especially with that blowing up in the media. Um, but I think there's, there's much more plausible avenues. If you want to explore the DNC hack as a false flag operation, you know, they don't need Seth Rich to be involved. You know, there's, there's a lot of people at the top with a lot of different motivations. Um, so I, I don't see Seth Rich really being the, the guy involved there. Good deal. Thanks, man. Thank you. Um, I'm going to add Matt. And Matt, I hope you have a long question because I got to take a drink of water. So, what's going on? Yeah, Matt? and I was hey, I was just going to chime in on that. I've said this in other chats and other, on the spaces that the other simple Occam's razor explanation for the DNC hack and the lack of exfiltration um, fingerprints is that it was potentially uh, a backup that was absconded with either from a, a offsite storage or from another cloud backup. And that's, that's something that's never been fully explained, but it does sort of fit with the fact pattern as we know it. So, but I think uh, you did a great job there on the Seth reasons not to really give credence to the Seth Rich angle. So good job on that. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I know you've read that, raised that point before. And I think that's a very interesting avenue to pursue that the idea that this might've been accessed through a backup. I think that's very plausible. Um, I would also think about remediation efforts. So if you see all this data that was staged for exfiltration um, or you think there's a hack underway, the first thing you, you think a client would ask is, what did they get, right? Like who's, whose information was exposed? Who do I have to call? Um, so show me everything that was compromised. And to that angle, you think, you know, Sussman or somebody like that would ask CrowdStrike, like, hey, show me all the files that were exposed. Like, I need to get ahead of this. We have donors. It's an election season. I need to get ahead of this. So they would hand Sussman or somebody else all the files, right? Because they need to know. They need to do a self-review to know what's been exposed. So there's, there's going to be like a, a collation of all the documents for somebody to go through because they can need to know what's exposed. So I think that's a potential avenue as well. And I'm not, a, not accusing anybody, but I think that's maybe a more plausible avenue than Seth Rich. So, All right. Let's see who else we got here. 
Hey, Christopher, how's it going? Hey, Christopher, what's up, man? All right, let's go to let's go to Wow. What's up? Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, how's it going? How you doing? Um, uh, let me just say this, okay? I'm. I'm uh, maybe I can pass this on to everybody out there that's listening. Is anybody worried about the safety for Durham, Cooper, or any of the witnesses that they might be, quote, touched? Uh, or anybody, is anybody worried about them being spied on? Because you can't put it past the Democratic Party, okay? You can't put it past them. Like the, the prosecution team, the, the Durham Special Counsel, are they being spied on? Is there a spy inside their camp? I wouldn't put it past them. I'm just telling you now, I'm worried about this. And I'm shocked. And I, to be fair, I'm shocked that Garland had to shut down the uh, the operation. I think when it gets to be so bad, they'll probably say, we got to shut this down. And you know the mainstream media won't go crazy about it. They won't. Even though they threatened Trump that if, Mueller, if he shut down Mueller, it'd be a different story. So I just, I, I, am I being conspiratorial? I don't know. But I'm just wondering, are they, are they getting good protection, security? Stuff like that. That's all I'm asking. Yeah, so it's a a good question. I, I think at this point, we don't have to worry about Garland shutting Durham down. He's got three indictments. He's, he's got a joint veg, venture conspiracy outline pretty well. So I don't worry about Garland anymore. Um, as it relates to Durham's safety, I think he's, you know, he's going to be pretty well protected at this point. Um, you know, early on in his investigation, I think it would be kind of curious to, to know who had access to his data. Um, now that we know now Durham that was active in 2019, we know Durham was and, active and in 2019, people, and, and certain people. Whoa, getting some getting some feedback there. Sorry, guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have Durham um, Durham's data, right? All his, you know, special counsel office might potentially be exposed um, to people that had contracts to monitor you know, government DNS activity. I think that's kind of an interesting avenue. But at this point, I don't think Durham's got anything to worry about. I mean, there's just too much too much at stake. I mean, they can't really do anything to the guy at this point. Um, they did expose his office location in a filing a few months ago, which was just horrendous of them to do. Um, but I'm sure Durham got that taken care of, and uh, he probably got some extra security because of that. So... Um, yeah, Durham's been doing this a long time. He, he was, you know, when the mob was at its worst, uh, Durham stepped up and he prosecuted the mob. So I, he knows how to take care of himself and, and I'm sure he, he's going to be just fine. Well, well, thank you for answering that. And, um, I just want to know this, what's her name is Lauren Seagull. Is that her name? The, uh, the lady that was given immunity? Yeah. Laura Seagull. She works for Fusion GPS. She has full immunity now. Okay, are they protecting her? Because I wouldn't put it past Hillary Clinton, if you know what I mean. Bodies seem to drop when you're around her. Yeah, I would have to imagine Durham's range some, some pretty good security for her. 
Okay, we'll see. I just hope they get the Durham gets the the, the uh, emails and everything like that. Cause I mean, once they do that, I'm sorry, there's no turning back. And maybe Sussman is there a possibility Sussman could still flip? Yeah, he, I mean, he could. I I think the whole motivation on his part of going the speedy trial route and and exercising that right was to try to get ahead of some of this and then maybe fight against providing additional documents on like a double jeopardy claim. Um, but, you know, Sussman's going to have to be worried about a conspiracy charge here uh, in a couple months, I think. So, Do you think Durham overall, in your opinion, he has enough evidence or overwhelming evidence? Or are we just, you know, just guessing? I'm just asking, uh, just as a layman. Is the is the evidence that horrific that uh, well Elias and his team, uh, those, those lawyers, will all be found out about? I, 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 because this, you can you know something happened, and the fact that they're fighting tooth and nail, life and death, did not get these emails or these correspondences out. Something is not right, and it's really it's probably even a thousand times worse than we even think. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, there's there's 1,500 emails, and you're exactly right. I mean, they've been fighting tooth and nail through multiple investigations not to provide these documents. Um, so whatever's in these, these 1,500 emails is going to be really bad, I imagine. Um, and, yeah, it's probably going to be a, a game changer for John Durham. I mean, I think he's going he's gonna to have some pretty strong leads once he gets these emails, I imagine. And if and if if Sussman does flip, does he? I'm telling you, he better fear for his life because if he says we all know Clinton was involved, let's not be all dummies out here. I'm not calling any about the other thing, but we all know what what went on. Okay, we don't have to say we all know what went on. And if Sussman turns, you know, I'm not afraid to say it. He's a dead man. That's just one person's opinion. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. I. I, I would love to see him flip. I think he's got a, just a mountain of information, and he could he could take down a lot of people. Um, but, yeah, I can't say anything beyond that. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, guys. I guess Wall was next. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, yeah, I'm going to try to make it as fast as possible. Uh, good, good evening, everyone. So three, three things uh, – do we see possibly a uh, Gary Gensler, SEC chairman, being uh, probably investigated because he was the finance manager for the campaign? He is the one that paid off all the bills because they have the motives. I see a possible outcome, something like uh, Alienist Untouchables, where they, they got the book, the Booker, it has all the information. Yeah, people are going to think I planted you in the audience. That that's that's a the exact point that I make pretty much every chat. I I always bring up Gary Gensler, and I I'm right there with you. He signed all the checks. He's the CFO of the campaign, and I, I've made the point several times before. It might be boring, but you know he was in Senator Sarbanes' office as a staffer drafting the Sarbanes Oxley legislation that governs the accounting practice. So he knows full well that as CFO, his responsibility is to know what's in the financial accounting records. And if there's an invoice that com- 
comes across this desk that says, you know, confidential project or, you know, the billing just seems too high for the services that are described. He has an obligation to investigate that. He can't just pay the invoices. So he has to answer questions about what he knew about Fusion GPS and funding the Steele dossier. And it's entirely uh, inappropriate for him to remain as head of the SEC right now. He should resign tomorrow. And he needs to be put in a grand jury, and he needs to he needs to be made to testify about what he knew, and certainly conversation that he had about with Mark Elias and others within the campaign, um, because you know if nothing else, he's a witness. I mean, people are going to be asking him in the financial reviews, uh, you know, different questions about invoices, and they're going to be comments that are made. So I mean, there's just there's just so much there. Um, with him being the CFO, he should resign and he should testify immediately. So I agree. And it's great because he openly, with arrogance, says in an MIT video that he was the head of the campaign. Um, second question. Can we see Durham maybe putting the investigation for the Clinton Foundation as well? Because... I do see there was an issue with with a Chelsea Clinton on one of the WikiLeaks emails where she she was stating how certain uh, activities could be deemed criminal or some in, in the spectrum of criminal. So can I see? I know there was two separate investigations. One would be for the the Russia hoax, and then yep. I know the White House. I mean the the Clinton Foundation was being investigated. Can we see Durham maybe possibly doing, bringing in that one into the whole uh, investigation? Yeah, so that's a good question. And public reporting, um, and I, I think it has been con confirmed, I think, by Bill Barr, uh, he absorbed that investigation. So um, Huber was the one that was investigating the Clinton Foundation, and John Durham did absorb that investigation. Now, there was a report... I want to say it was September 2020 uh, that outlined that, that, you know, John Durham was finding, was absorbing the Clinton Foundation. And I think there was at least one subsequent report that suggested that he was finding some pretty weird stuff there. Um, but we have not heard anything else um, as it relates to the Clinton Foundation that I'm aware of. Because you would think that if some financials were getting low and they were doing money laundering, then Clinton Foundation, should they need more money or more bigger, I guess, to do more bigger schemes, they would pull out financials from the Clinton Foundation to help assess, assist with uh, the Clinton campaign. Yeah, so, and I, I've made this point before. I, I, I suspect there is going to be a very significant money laundering operation. Um, as it stands right now, Perkins Coy paid Fusion GPS, I think, a million dollars, maybe a million and a half of that. They paid Christopher Steele about 275,000. And that's, that's all that's been declared or attributed right now to the Steele dossier and all these operations that, that we know about. But in 2017, uh, John Podesta and Glenn Simpson helped Daniel Jones set up TDIP, the D Democracy Integrity Project, and they helped fundraise for that. And in 2017, TDIP sent Fusion GPS $3.3 million. 
Now, I don't know if that's retroactive for stuff they did in 2016. I don't know if that was for that year's operations. Um, but, you know, I think there's going to be more payments out there. I, I don't think it even ends there. I think there's going to be more shell companies. Um, you know, I'm really curious. I don't think it's connected to Clinton at all. But, you know, these, this company, Measurement Systems, that was reported on uh, by the Wall Street Journal just a couple weeks ago for surreptitiously collecting data uh, through apps in Google um, and selling that to the Department of Defense, you know, they're registered in Panama. And I made this point the other day, like you don't need to register in Panama to do business with the Department of Defense. But it, it, it raises the question, like the Department of Defense, you know, contracting with the federal government, they have to vet these companies. So um, are they, were they aware of this registration in Panama or, you know, is this company is clearly doing business with the federal government. So is it like the, the dark side of the U S intelligence agency where, you know, they're helping them move some money. They're, you know, collecting data on foreigners, which is what was reported that le led me to believe that they're connected to, you know, maybe the CIA or, or some, some Intel agency that's going to be focused on foreign operations. Um, and the ties go pretty deep there. And, and I'm expecting there to be, additional companies that are registered in Panama that are probably connected to Raymond Salino or Rodney Joffe. And, you know, there's going to be a web there. I, I don't, I don't imagine that's the only company they register in Panama. And if they're not money laundering, if they're just doing business with the U S government, it's going to be, you know, CIA moving money, like contra Iran type stuff. Like it's going to be, it's going to be pretty bad. Um, yeah. And you know maybe they are maybe they are just money launderers. I, I don't know, uh, but the Panama registration is just a that's just a I got my heart going the other day. So, <laughs> and my last final question, I might be a little yeah. odd one. Um, there's whispers on the jury case that father and son are possibly working together on the case. What would what is your uh, thoughts on that, John Doerr? Term Jr.? Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. I, I guess I haven't heard. I, I think there was maybe one or two small pieces that sort of had some overlap with, with John Durham Jr., but I, I don't know if anybody else can speak to that. I, I don't think I've seen anything recently. I, I can't even remember what I'm even referencing. Um, as far as I know, they're not, not necessarily working together. Um, I think it'd be good if they did. I, from what I understand... Uh, John Durham Jr. is a good prosecutor too, so that, that'd be good. Well, he's in the Eastern District of New York, which is just of interest that <laughs> uh, earlier uh, ship just speculated that maybe a, a superseding indictment could end up there. Just a thought. Cool. All right, gentlemen, thank you for your time. You have a good night. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let's see here. Been at this for a while. Uh, let's do Ironworks, and then I might wrap it up if nobody else has questions or comments. Um, hey, Ironworks. How's it going? Ironworks, what's up, man? 
Uh-oh. Not having good luck tonight. Um, tell you what, guys. I imagine we're going to have some additional chats here in the future. I, you know, I don't know what else might come up for in the next couple of days uh, from John Durham and the Sussman case, but uh, there's always the Danchenko case out there, and, and who knows, maybe there's another indictment or two coming. Um, so I think I'm going to end this one a little bit early tonight. Um, thank you to everybody that came out tonight. I uh, appreciate everybody that asked questions. I, I appreciate everybody that spoke. I, um, Shipwreck is always fantastic. Everybody should su subscribe to him. Um, Technofog, he was in here, obviously. Um, he's you know, probably the best reporter on this. He, he's the first to get all the scoops. Uh, he's got a fantastic uh, sub stack. Everybody should subscribe to that. And other than that, I mean, we'll, uh, we'll try to keep doing these chats whenever there's a major event. I don't know that we'll have a regular chat anymore. Um, I've been seeing that more people are actually doing Durham coverage. I, I know Jack uh, Poso uh, is doing some, some work, um, seeing some others there too. So uh, don't necessarily plan on doing it like a regular chat anymore. Um, but certainly, you know, major events and indictments. And I imagine, hope there's going to be a lot of indictments. We'll, we'll certainly continue to do chats. So I'm going to end it here. And thank you to everybody. See you guys. Night, everybody.